All right, we've been calling this tribalism because I started these lessons teaching, uh, writing a lesson for uh, Kenya. I had never encountered tribalism until we went to Kenya two years ago. And since then, I've been, this will be my fourth trip to Kenya this next week. And just as a Southerner dealing with white-black race relations, tribalism just is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of, that two Africans would hate each other because they have a different tribal name and literally murder each other. And you and I wouldn't be able to tell them apart from Adam. And yet they can by the way they walk, by maybe scars on their face, by their accent. That's tribalism. All this stuff that we've been dealing with for these several lessons is all from the pit of hell. It all has to do with pride, demonism, and hatred. When we understand that God made all of us the different colors we are because it pleased him, that he set all nations in their borders it is, as it's pleased him according to Acts, then we realize this is really stupid to get upset because God made us differently. The Bible teaches us that even when we get to heaven, we're still going to be different. But he's made of all nations one blood, his blood, and on top of that, he's a Jew. We know there's not a black Jesus. We know there's not a white Jesus. There's not a Latino Jesus. There's a lot of Latino Jesuses out there, but there's a Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth being a city in Israel. He's a Jew. So if, if anything else, we've been blood washed with Jewish blood. And so I don't know what our glorified bodies will look like, but I'm convinced we'll still recognize that we're white. They're black. That's an Indian. That's an Asian. And God says this is the way I meant for it to be. Amen. So I call this lesson four New Testament Prejudice. Uh, let's run through these lists of uh, definitions we've looked at now for three weeks. Tribalism, strong loyalty to one's tribe, party, or group. We would say even hatred and violence based upon that. Bigotry, stubborn and complete intolerance of any creed, belief, or opinion that differs from your own. It's not based on color, it's based on beliefs. Now, Unfortunately, in America, with our vernacular and English, we dissolve words. You know, scientists tell us, linguists tell us that the English language is, is dissolving rapidly. We don't have the vocabulary we used to. We don't even know how to distinguish between vocabulary words. We lump in bigotry with racism. But racism is a prejudice based on race. Bigotry is based on opinion and, and ideologies. But if I don't like Pastor Fred because he's black, I'm called a bigot. Well, no, technically it would be a racial prejudice or a color prejudice. So I'm a stickler for words because they make us smart and educated. They help us to articulate. So that's why we show you these words so you can understand what technically bigotry is. Prejudice is unreasonable. These are all from the Oxford Dictionary. The Oxford, that means English. Not American English. 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 <laughs> prejudice. Unreasonable feelings, opinions, or attitudes, especially of a hostile nature, regarding an ethnic, racial, social, or religious group. So it's a feeling. It's not an action yet. A prejudice is a feeling or opinion or attitude. And sometimes attitudes are manifested by how you treat people. Typically, it's a passive attitude. It's snubbing your nose at someone. But it's a prejudice. The word literally means to prejudge or to judge in advance. And now there is a good type of prejudice where we, have, we prejudge things. We are, we're giving information in advance, and if you're prejudging for your own safety, that's a good kind of prejudice. Uh, but before, first time we went to Nigeria, I, uh, the only time we've been to Nigeria, Pastor Akwokwo warned us how dangerous it was. So we were prejudiced, a good kind of prejudice. We had it from the source. 
I will be, he said, I will fly from Port Harcourt to Lagos to pick you up because it will not be safe for you to be in my country as white people because you're white. It's not because they hated us, but because white people are seen as a source of money. And there was a lot of kidnappings that were going on at the time where the four of us were the only whites to be picked up at the airport without armed security. We were picked up by a little five foot tall African. <laughs> and it didn't matter because that was as good as an army because that was Pastor Okwokwo. So racism, there were three definitions for time's sake. I just gave us the third one that is more applicable to our day. A belief or doctrine that inherent differences among the various human racial groups determine cultural or individual achievement. Now, what that means is because you're of a different race, you have a propensity to be better at something than a different race. All right. Whereas we believe everybody is equal or capable of the same. We recognize that it's just a pigment. Now, there might be some some skeletal structure issues. There might be, you know, the, uh, the Gurkhas of Nepal are shorter. The Guatemalans are shorter than the Mexicans. Uh, um, you get some Asians, though, that are typically short, but then you've got Jeremy Lin, who's like nine feet tall. You get the occasional fluke of genetics. This, this is an ignorant doctrine that harkens back to colonial times where they begin to see achievements, but really what they were observing was culture evolving a certain niche. And they thought, well, all Asians are good at math. And, and all Africans are athletic. I don't know, I've seen some Africans that were not athletic at all. You know, it's, this is the doctrine that the races determine ability, which is not true. Usually involving the idea, and this is what we underline because this is what we understand as Americans today, usually involving the idea that one's own race is superior and has the right to dominate others. That is racism in its purest form. When my race is superior because it happens to be the race I am of, and therefore I have the right to dominate anybody not my color or that a particular racial group is inferior to the others. Hitler was a famous racist, and oddly enough, he thought the Aryans were the best, and he wasn't Aryan at all. He believed in evolution. Darwinism had really picked up steam at the time, and he had a list showing the lesser races. He, he thought Africans were the lowest, believing they had evolved from monkeys, and right above that were Jews, which was awesome when in 1938, Jesse Owens, the black American, won all the gold medals in the uh, Berlin or Munich Olympics there. And, and Hitler had to, to be there to watch his little ego be crushed. So then we looked at culturalism because honestly, in America today, this is what we experience and we don't even realize it. I, I, there's racism in America where people believe that because they're white or black, they're superior. That's pure racism. But a bulk of what we're really experiencing today is a cultural tension. Culturalism, belief in the relative superiority or inferiority of certain cultures, discrimination or prejudice based on these cultural beliefs. Um, this was a term used, it was coined in the 19th century. We've not heard it used at all, but this is a word been rolling around in me for several months. So I went and did some research on it, and it actually is a word that has already been developed and circulated, though it's died out. I want to try to bring a renaissance to this word because it's a more accurate explanation of the tensions we're feeling in America right now. Because I'm a white guy. I don't think I have any superiority over blacks or Hispanics. But I see problems in cultures. I see problems in black culture. I see problems in Middle Tennessee white honky culture. I see problems in Hispanic culture because I see truth based on the Bible. 
And so uh, we'll get onto it. We've covered this in previous lessons. A culturalist then is one who judges a culture as superior or inferior. So just like a racist is someone who believes one race is superior and another inferior, a culturist is someone who believes a culture is superior or inferior. Now let me be quick to point out, every one of us as born-again believers, we should be biblical culturists in that we believe the Bible culture is superior to any culture in the world and that the Bible should preempt and trump any culture of your upbringing, which means just because you were brought up to do it, don't make it right. A bulk of discipleship is designed to override the way mom and dad raised you if you weren't raised proper. And nobody's raised 100% proper. So even as good as we're trying to do with our girls, there's going to come a time in discipleship where they're going to say, mom and dad did the best they knew with the light they had, but I got to change this too. That's culturalism, biblical culturalism. I said, the, the use of this term has recently begun, but it's perhaps long overdue. And I would say I am a culturalist. I see certain aspects of cultures and I hate it because it's not biblical. We go to Africa. I'm not a racist, but I can tell you there's some African cultures that are straight up from the pit of hell and they violate the scripture. It has nothing to do with the color of their skin. I can go to Asia, totally hate some Asian culture, but I don't hate Asians at all. Come back to honky cracker, middle Tennessee, what redneck, backwards. That is in the English vernacular, backwards. And I hate some things about our Middle Tennessee culture, but it doesn't mean I hate white people. Stereotype. Any thought or caricature widely adopted about specific types of individuals or certain ways of behaving intended to represent the entire group of these individuals. This is mostly what gets labeled as racism in America today. But everybody operates on stereotypes. Because every one of us has a scientific aspect where we want to categorize, store for recall to know how to handle something in the future. Every one of us, no matter where we're from, we come from a stereotype that has truth to it. It doesn't mean it has to define the rest of our life, though. Going to Africa a lot, there is a stereotype of the typical African. It's that they live in a bush hut and they chase lions all day and throw spears. I've never seen any of that. I've seen bush huts. I've never seen anybody chase a lion and I've never seen anybody throw a spear. In fact, even Emma, you know, Emma Scudder, white girl in Africa now five years, she said she was complaining. She said, I don't like coming home to America because everybody thinks if I live in Africa, I live in a dung hut and they live in a house nicer than most of us do because they live in a compound that has to be safe for their safety's sake. So there's a stereotype. There is some truth to it. Some of what we understand about Africa comes from Nat Geo, but that is not most of the African experience, not in 2017. And we all can think of any stereotype, and if we started probing too long, our American culture would kick in and we'd start crying racist. But it has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with prior experience with one cultural group tied to a skin color. And I, I tell all of my African-American friends, you have nothing in common with Africans except skin color, because the way you were raised is totally different. You know, we just took Pastor Titus back, uh, we took him to the airport, we did some banking with him, and being from Zimbabwe, we were driving, and he said, just out of the blue, he said, oh, I have nothing in common with African Americans. We don't click. All my friends are white. <laughs> I thought, I'm uncomfortable. 
can't say amen to that. Somebody will hear and I'll be a racist. I was like, yes, sir, I love you too. <laughs> so then we coined the term two weeks ago or two lessons ago, biblical culturalism. It's a hard word to say, culturalism. Culturalism. The belief that all cultures, this is my definition. I coined it. If you ever hear anybody else say it, they got it from me because I've never heard this before, but in being a pastor, the Lord has dealt with me strongly on the aspect of pastors confronting perverse cultures. Biblical culturalism, the belief that all cultures of all nations and ethnic groups contain sinful traditions, customs, and habits, and therefore must be subjected to the perfecting work of God's law and New Testament doctrine. In short, the kingdom's culture is flawlessly preeminent and therefore takes precedence over any long-standing tradition. You don't get to stay the same if you find something better in the Bible. Now, we, I've been able to go, I think, nine countries since I've pastored and experienced cultures in those countries, and I can see biblical attributes in every country I've been in, in their culture, and I've seen pagan attributes in those as well. I think I told you that in Iceland, I've never met women who by culture were more the Proverbs 31 woman than any place I've ever been. The Icelandic women are more the Proverbs 31 woman than any set of women I've ever encountered. And yet Iceland has had one of the highest abortion rates in the world. But even going back to Viking times, if it was winter, they would put their babies out if they were born in the winter to freeze to death so they would have enough food for the rest of the family to survive. They've been aborting babies for a thousand years. And Iceland also has the highest infidelity rate or um, single parent rate. They've just lived together. They shack up for years and years and years before they ever get married. Pagan. And yet the women are the epitome of the Proverbs 31. They don't want to be the Jezebel like America, they, but they know how to work. They know how to run the house, but they don't want to be the man. That's a good biblical trait in their culture, but there's other aspects that we have to preach hard against. So in America, we're trying to get to our new part of our lesson. This is just review because... Our country, our culture, our nation is so messed up right now. The ethnic tension has been so inflamed in the last 10 years. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 70s, raised in the 80s and 90s, brought up in South Louisiana. I get racism. I mean, I, I was raised with the N-word, a household term, all the time because I'm from the South, and nothing was meant by it. And then I grew up in Seattle where all my friends were different colors. Whites were the minority. And I, I didn't see color anymore, though I understood Yakamoto was a Japanese name and Nguyen was a, a, a Vietnamese name and, and Badioli was a Filipino name and Miklan was a, a Ukrainian name. I, I got that, but they were my friends. And for me, I was like, I didn't care anymore to the last 10 years. And all of a sudden, it's just like a massive set of racial hemorrhoids has flared up in this nation. And it's not the president's, previous president's fault. It's the spirit of Antichrist because he said ethnos would rise up against ethnos. And, and we said the Greek implied that just overnight people would wake up and realize they're different and then hate each other over their differences. And it gets labeled any number of ways. So in America, this is my observation, most of what is often labeled racism today is really a stereotype based on cultural observation tied to an ethnic demographic. That's all it is. For example, here's some stereotypes. White people love country music. That's, not, that's a stereotype based on a limited cultural observation. It's not racism. I don't like country music at all. My IQ dips when I listen to it. That might be racial. No, it's not racial either. This does not describe all whites. It was funny. We were in Uganda a couple of years ago, and uh, we'd do a couple-day conferences. And at lunchtime, we'd have an hour break, and the pastor would play American music for us. It was all Kenny Rogers. 
Islands in the stream. That is what we are. Nothing in between. How can we go wrong? I'm sick as a dog. I have dysentery. I got the cold sweats and a fever, eating food that I, I can't keep down, and I got to listen to Kenny Rogers at the same time, which brought me back to painful memories of the late 70s because that's from the Gambler soundtrack. How do I even know that? Scudder's just laughing his head off. This is messed up, man. Stop laughing. Black people like watermelon. <laughs> Wait a minute. I like watermelon. Dr. James, who is black, hates watermelon. He always tells me, anytime I go racial, he says, I just want you to know I hate watermelon, Pastor. This, that's a stereotype based on a limited cultural observation, not racism. That's racist. Uh, no, that's a stereotype. This does not describe all black folks. Asians are good at math and kung fu. Well, technically, kung fu is Chinese. Taekwondo is Korean. Karate is Japanese. Salat is Thai. Uh, yeah, this is a stereotype based on limited cultural observation, not racism. This does not describe all Asians, and not all Asians are good at math. I'm sure they got some people over in Asia who are horrible at math. Mexicans are lazy. Really, why are they taking all your jobs? I mean, they walk from Oaxaca, which is almost all the way down to Central America, all the way to here to steal your job. That's not lazy. There might be some lazy Mexicans, but there's some lazy honkies too. That's a stereotype based on a limited cultural observation, not racism. It's just an observation. Maybe your observation, but not every observation. This does not describe all Mexicans. How about Arabs or terrorists? They're here a little bit closer to home. That's a stereotype based on a limited cultural observation. I like what one man said, uh, because there's a common statement right now. Not all Arabs are terrorists, but all terrorists are Arabs. Well, um, uh, Nelson Mandela was, went to prison for being a terrorist in South Africa for nearly 50 years because he blew stuff up. And you go to Ireland, the Irish Republic, you find out that terrorists are Catholic and Protestant. So really, a terrorist is somebody who provokes terror. Does Islam have some terrorism in it? Absolutely. And they're killing their own people. So this is, this is not a racial statement. It's a limited stereotype. This does not describe all Arabs. We were in Gatlinburg last week, and I was in line at Starbucks behind a, a very pretty Muslim girl with these precious children, and her husband was probably, and they're in their mid-20s. And I wanted, I just, she's in Gatlinburg, Redneck Central. I mean, any place that makes money selling airbrush shirts of Caleb Hart Tiffany with Confederate flags flying. I mean, I'm, I mean, the Confederate flag doesn't offend me. I don't see it as racism. I know other people do, but I'm also from the South. And I, just, I was just friendly with them because you never know when you can witness to them. And that lady was so friendly to me. I, we even got to chat, and I was showing her pictures of my girls. And she said, they look just like you. And I thought, that's racist. Very sweet lady. Her husband was a sweet guy. And I was trying to find a way to tell them about Jesus. It didn't work out. I was working, I was working it, trying to get a way to witness. But it's so much of what we do have is stereotypes. It's not racism. It's an observation based on your experience with somebody of a different color or culture. If you don't like your demographics stereotype, don't be the one that feeds it or fulfills it pretty simple. You don't like the white hick redneck stereotype? Don't be the white hick redneck. Take care of your teeth. Take care of your house. Don't listen to country music. If you're going to drive a truck, take care of it. And don't put squirrel tails on your antenna. You're just asking to be made fun of. 
And don't admit you've had squirrel brains, Jeff King. You just keep that to yourself. <laughs> New Testament examples of prejudice. This is what I wanted to get to. All that's review. All cultures and peoples have prejudice, racism, and bigotry. We all do. Maybe not full-fledged racism, but we all have our prejudices because of how we were raised and because of the culture we were raised in. It, because it's part of the sin nature, and that's it. Sin nature always wants to flare up and do something against God. As we saw in lesson two, the Jews had a national pride that, had, that evolved into prejudice and racism. The Jews thought anybody non-Jewish was unclean, unholy, and basically uh, ready for judgment and damnation. And they were all grouped together. They, in that regard, they were unbiased. They didn't care if you were African or Asian or if you were a Caucasian from Europe. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile going to hell. So it was them against everybody, but that was in the law. As we saw in lesson two, the Jews had a national pride that evolved into prejudice and racism. Let me say this. There's nothing wrong with a national pride. Paul said, preaching at Mars Hill in the book of Acts, God hath set all nations in their borders as it has pleased him. Therefore, the nations that be, be the will of God. And you ought to be proud in a good sense of where God called you to be. And you ought to have a love for your people there, even as Paul had a love for the Jews, though he was an apostle to the Gentiles. There's nothing wrong with being proud of being an American, no matter what the media says. There's nothing wrong with being proud of being Italian or Russian or Asian, because it's where God birthed you and wants to be able to send you back to them because he wants everybody in heaven. But consider the following examples because we see this prejudice in the ministry of Jesus Christ, not in Jesus, but in his ministry. That means in the men around him. Hear me out. Jesus never sinned, but the people he worked with were sinners. So he had a disciple team. So when they goofed up, that represented Jesus. Just like when, when you guys goof up, it represents me. Just like when I goof up, it represents the Lord. So consider the parable. We mentioned, the, uh, not the parable, the story of the, of the uh, food provision. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I decided to dig into it deeper and show you some things. The miracle of five fishes and two loaves was a demonstration of prejudice. Not by Jesus, but how the disciples kicked the thing off. Look at this, Luke chapter 9. And Jesus took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him, and he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. And when, when the day, the day, one day, when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said unto Jesus, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country round about and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in a desert place. All right? So what's the big deal? Jesus multiplied fishes and loaves twice in two different locations. The first event took place just outside of Bethsaida, and here are the facts of the event. Bethsaida, which means house of fish, was the hometown of Andrew, Peter, John, and Philip. It was Jewish territory. It's the last Jewish city before you hit Roman territory. It's on the border in the northeast uh, quadrant of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida was a Jewish city, and again, this is those four guys, one-third of the discipleship, the apostleship, that's their hometown. So you know they're recognizing people in the crowd. Because this is the wilderness outside Bethsaida. This would be like the fairgrounds, so to speak. It's just outside of town. 
The disciples initiated the miracle after a long day out of concern for the people in attendance. It's a long day. They've not eaten today. Send them home so they can go get some food. The disciples had a natural compassion for their, quote, own people. I, I, I don't like that term. Your people and my people. As a Christian, that term really grates on my nerves. It's, it's not the semantic of it. It's usually the heart behind it. I've had, I've had you know, I, there's racism against whites, and I've had black people say, you need to help your people better. What do you mean my people? What do you, what do you mean? Like the body of Christ? That's what I do every Sunday. It's what I do when I go to Africa. It's what I do when I go to Europe. I'm helping my people. And anybody else that wants help, what do you mean my people? What are your people? If your people are only black, you're racist. If that's the only people you'll include in your group, that, that goes back to our definition. You think the black color is superior. Jesus fed 5,000 men that day. There were 12 baskets left over indicating everyone in attendance was fed. Everybody was taken care of. All right, cool, miracle. The, the disciples initiated it because it had been a long day. They, I'm sure they recognized at least a couple families in attendance, if not maybe half the crowd. It's their hometown. They were fishermen, Bethsaida, house of fish. And Jesus said, watch this. We don't have to send them home. Watch this. And I'm sure he's the Lord Jesus. He knows what he's doing and what he's dealing with. Look at the next example. Usually in the Gospels, two chapters later, in Matthew and in Mark, seven loaves and some fishes. The Bible says some fishes. It doesn't tell us how many. And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Zidon, he came into the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way for diverse or different kinds have come from very far away. So this miracle took place a short time after the first miracle of provision, but in Decapolis, which means the 10 cities. This was a region. A pre, this was a predominantly Gentile region southeast of Bethsaida along the coast of Galilee. Decapolis was a 10-city region the Romans heavily supported and encouraged Roman culture to flourish there. Notice how this event unfolded. This revival took place in a predominantly Gentile pro-Roman district. Now, one of the things I haven't said yet is if you understand first century Palestine, the Jews aren't just nationalistic thinking that their God is the only God, which he is, and that Gentiles are unclean, which they were under the law. But they're also under Roman occupation, having come out of Greek occupation. The Greek empire fell, Rome arose, and just kind of basically quickly filled the void. So they've not known freedom, not since before Nebuchadnezzar. Even under Ezra and Nehemiah, they were still under the Persian kings, just governors over Israel. But as the Persian kingdom switched to the Greek empire, you had Antiochus Epiphanes totally persecute them. They've not been their own people in hundreds of years. So there's a little bit of bitterness against the occupying force. So not only are they in a non-Jewish neighborhood, they're in a pro-Roman neighborhood, which makes things even worse. The 12 disciples were not concerned about the crowd's well-being even after three days of no food. See, in their neighborhood, one day, Lord, they're hungry. Lord, look at the babies. 
Here, after three days, they've not even said a word. They don't care. Even with babies, even with toddlers, even with children. How can you not care about children? Even if you don't like black people, you can like black children. Even if you don't like white people, you can have compassion on white children. But you see the prejudice coming out of them. It was Jesus who was moved with compassion after the disciples had remained silent. And it appears as if he'd, they'd, if he'd remained silent, they wouldn't have cared another two or three days. So Jesus fed 4,000 men. There were seven baskets left over indicating that everyone present was fed. So once again, Jesus works a miracle, but you see the discrepancy. The apostles, these are the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They're not concerned about pro-Roman Gentiles. They don't know anybody there. They're not my people. Eh, And this is who Jesus is going to turn the world upside down with. And this is prejudice within the ministry of Jesus Christ. Not Jesus, but his heads, his apostles. If they weren't Jews, we don't care. Even though they had come for three days. That was way longer than the guys at Bethsaida. And Jesus had worked just as many miracles, signs, and wonders. This is one of the few Gentile regions Jesus went to over and over. This is where the madman of Gadara was delivered. Gadara is one of the ten cities. Some of the 10 cities of Decapolis, Jesus did some of his greatest miracles in. And he never said woe unto any of them like he said woe unto Bethsaida and Chorazin, woe unto Tyre and Zidon. He never said that to the Gentile regions, only the Jewish regions. Peter's heart condition. We're looking at New Testament prejudices, all right? Here's here's the reason, because you and I are born again and we're spirit-filled, God uses us, and we still got prejudices in us. And even if you get something clean, somebody different from you may violate you tomorrow and all of a sudden spike you with prejudice. And all of a sudden you, I hate that person because they're this color and they did this to me. And you'll have an unbiased, if if someone of your own color does something against you, you'll give them a nod, you'll give them a pass. That's a prejudice, that's a bias. We often falsely view the apostles as perfect. Peter was a Jew born and raised in Israel during the time of Roman occupation and was therefore understandably inculcated in Jewish pride, nationalism, and perhaps resentment against the Romans. Yet Jesus still selected him to be one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Peter's transformation was not overnight. He demonstrated typical Jewish prejudice over and over again during the Lord's ministry. We just saw one of the major instances. What about the woman, I don't had time, didn't have time to write it, the Syrophoenician woman. Syrophoenician means Greek. And they said, Lord, tell her to go away. She won't stop bothering us. And yet Jesus does a miracle, heals her daughter. And actually the Bible says from her healing and her miracles when he went to Decapolis to just feed the multitude we just read about. The fact that he stops and heals a Greek when the, the disciples say, go, make her go away. Tell the dog to go away. From there, he goes to Decapolis and feeds the 4,000 men. You see, you see this racial thing that Jesus is trying to deal with. He demonstrated typical Jewish prejudice over and over again during the Lord's ministry. His heart change didn't happen in the three years of the Lord's ministry. So think about that. Just because you get born again, your heart doesn't change. You get born again in your spirit, but you're still a mess. It didn't even happen at Pentecost. At least there he could stand up and talk to everybody that were proselyte Jews from all over the world. At least those were halfway better. They had converted to Judaism. They weren't full dogs, but he stood from afar off and yelled at them. 
It's real bold when your pulpit's the rooftop. <laughs> Peter continued to show signs of prejudice well into his apostleship. So Peter and the new deacons, we, we covered this in previous lessons. By Acts 5, Peter had outgrown any bias or prejudice against Grecians. We talked about the Grecians. A Grecian is a Jew born outside of Israel, having taken upon them Hellenized culture or Greek culture. So they would have spoken Hebrew with a different accent. They would have dressed differently. They wouldn't have fully been Israeli in their culture, but they were still Jews subscribing to Judaism. That was a Hellenized or a Grecian. And we know in Acts 5, the Grecian widows in the New Testament church were being neglected because they were Grecian. So there's prejudice in the book of Acts church. Not even against a race, just against a culture. They have a different accent. They dress a little bit differently. They don't do things like we Israelis do. Yeah, but they are Israelites. They were just born and lived for some season outside of Israel because of the Roman Empire, because of the Greek Empire. So he said, you guys, you pick yourselves out seven men full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom who we shall appoint to do this. And you know what? The crowd that pleased the whole crowd, and they selected three Grecians and two outsiders. Three were a Grecian and one was a proselyte Jew and one was from the coast. And if he was from the coast, you knew he was comfortable with people of every culture because living on the coast, you're exposed to everybody of every color under the sun, especially during the Roman Empire. Peter and Cornelius' household. We should be familiar with this story. This is one of my favorites. Even in Acts 10, some estimates 10 years after Pentecost, Peter was still dealing with prejudice in his heart towards Gentiles. It's a good thing he wasn't a Gen, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. He had really been up a creek. He was an apostle to the Jews, and the Lord was slowly working with him to get the prejudice out. The Lord arranged the Cornelian experience, as I call it, to help Peter further fix his heart. With hidden prejudice in his heart, Peter had a trance. We know this, and saw, Paul, Peter said, and he saw heaven open and a certain vessel descending upon unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the earth. And there came a voice to him, arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, what God has cleansed, that call not thou common or unclean or unhallowed. This was done thrice and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Notice the thing about prejudice in the heart. When it's in your heart, you'll argue with a trance and a vision from God. He's telling the Lord, Lord, I'm not prejudiced. <laughs> if the Lord's giving you a vision about you being prejudiced, you prejudice. Anybody that says I'm not prejudiced, you prejudice. I'm a pastor, I preach to all colored people, and I got prejudice in me, and I'm constantly dealing with it. it it's, it's just a bias. It's, it's, a, it's a presumption that tries to constantly creep in you. Just like I'm a pastor, I have to keep my appetites under control. I have to keep my attitudes right. I have to, I have to adjust everything because I'm not perfect, and I have a sin nature till death do us part. Peter is arguing with God Almighty in a vision. And the Lord has to say three, anytime the Lord tells you three times, you are so wrong. Just, you should just shut up the first time and say, yes, Lord. <laughs> the Lord's statement to Peter reveals the heart of Peter's prejudice. Peter was struggling to see Gentiles as anything but unclean, common, and defiled. He struggled to believe that Gentiles could be born again. Even though Jesus had spoken to them many times, I have sheep you know not of. I have a, a flock you know not of. It tells you that any heart condition can put cotton in your ears to what the Lord's telling you in that moment. 
Even the, the gospel writers, would, when they would write and talk about Jesus, they'd say, and Jesus said this, but we didn't understand what he was saying at the time. And they give the interpretation after the fact. But this he signified of his death. Or this he signified of what death he should die. Or this he signified, signifying that he should be delivered to the Gentiles. He struggled to believe that Gentiles could be born again. This was a racism, bigotry, and culturalism based on his Jewish upbringing and probably Roman occupation. Listen, uh, we don't have time to cover it this morning, but all racism, and I, I, maybe our next lesson, if I have time to write it before we go to Africa next week, we'll be t- talking about the offense. All racism and offense is learned. I've made this point over and over again. We as whites, we white people in here, we got a lot of different people here this morning. We, we have some real Africans, we have some African Americans, uh, we, we then we got crackers. We cracker, honky, white bread, cottontail, snow bunnies in here. We don't get offended at those terms because we're not taught to be offended at them by our parents. Like if, I've made the joke, if you call me cracker white bread, I get to giggling and I get hungry. <laughs> white bread. Man, I could go for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on some <laughs> bunny bread. Man, cottontail. I love old Peter Cottontail. Snowflake. I love winter. I've not been taught by my parents to be offended by any of those. Peckerwood. There's a good redneck term. That's a, that used to be a very harsh anti-white term. But we're not taught. Our, the American white culture is not taught to be offended at that. Therefore, the words fall flat. And if the words fall flat, nobody bothers with them. Racism is learned and offense is learned. So what we have to change is the culture and the mindset. Amen. Acts 10, 28. And Peter said unto them, You know that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So Peter's testifying. It's not lawful for me to be here. That's kind of how I've been taught. And God just spoke to me the other day that this needs to change. Um, So I'm still working that out, but I'm here. (laughs) He's blaming God. God said, then God changed his mind on me. And, and, you know, I'm 35 years old and I've been a racist Jew my whole life. So what do you guys want? That's what he says in the next verse. What do you want? So Cornelius tells him, I had a vision. And then Cornelius tells the apostle, you did good to obey and come here. I mean, I don't have time to cover the whole passage, but it is so wonderful. It's Peter just getting beat up over and over again. And then he tries to stand up and preach this powerful message, and the Holy Ghost just interrupts halfway through it and gets them all spirit-filled. And it's a recreation of Pentecost, but on a bunch of honky cracker Gentiles. Though Peter was a born-again, spirit-filled apostle of the Lamb, he still had heart murmurs. The Lord sent Peter to a Roman centurion's house. Talk about a confrontation of prejudices. Not just a Gentile, a Roman soldier that had been oppressing Jews for 150 years. This is like the worst kind of prejudice Peter would have had in his heart. Not just a non-Jew, a Roman centurion who's responsible for keeping the peace and oppressing anywhere the Roman centurion is sent. A Roman centurion was a soldier over 100 soldiers. He was only one man removed from the Pope, uh, not Pope, uh, uh, the Caesar. You had the senator, the local regional senator, and then you had Caesar. So it went Caesar, senator, centurion. The man had the power to destroy a whole city if he wanted to. And they were not liked. 
And so Peter's still dealing with his anti-Gentile discrimination. And whose house does he get called to? A Roman centurion, Gentile, and the entire household and all of his close friends. I estimate maybe two or 300 people. And he walks into the house and it's everybody Peter has hated his whole life. <laughs> Acts 10, 24. And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, Cornelius waited for them and he had called together his kinsmen and near friends, all Gentiles. The Lord had to really help Peter through his anti-Gentile prejudices. God began knocking some sense into Peter by knocking him into a trance. Don't brag about having dreams and visions. It usually means you're so stubborn God can't talk to you while you're awake. An angel forewarned Peter about the Cornelius's, uh, Cornelius's messengers, messengers and commanded him to go with them, nothing doubting because they were sent by God. An angel had to say, I'm sending some men. They're at the door now. Three of them doubt nothing. Go with them. Because otherwise, Peter probably would have said, um, no. The Lord allowed Peter to take with him certain brethren from Joppa. He had to have, quote, his people with him. Why couldn't he just go by himself? But the Lord permitted it because he knew... Peter's on the little anti-racial training wheels. He's still learning how to overcome these, these prejudices. All right, if it makes you feel comfortable to take some of your brethren with you just for help in case these crazy Gentiles want to eat you or something. And for the grand finale, Peter got to watch a Roman centurion and his entire Gentile household and friends get baptized in the Holy Ghost and speak in tongues in a reenactment of the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. And Peter didn't lay a hand on a single one of them. It interrupted his sermon. It would be like me preaching to you right now, and all of a sudden, all of you just started speaking in tongues, prophesying. I could do nothing but look at the Jews behind me, which is what the Bible says Peter did, and said, who can forbid water? <laughs> Anybody want to drown them? They're never going to believe this back in Jerusalem. All of this to help an apostle of the Lamb who's been born again at least 10 years and in the ministry of an apostle at least 10, year, 10 years. Peter's Antioch sin, last section here, we're already over time. Nearly 30 years after Pentecost and almost 20 years after Peter's experience at Cornelius' house, Paul recorded an experience when Peter reverted to his Gentile prejudice in Antioch. Galatians 2 says, but when Cephas, he doesn't even call him Peter here, he calls him Cephas, not the rock, the same thing the Lord called him when he was denying him. Cephas, do you love me? Caiaphas, do you love me? He came to Antioch. That's a, a predominantly Gentile region. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, that was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, certain of the Jewish Christians from James's church who had reverted back to Judaism at this time, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. That means act like an idiot fearing the party of the circumcision. Notice they came out of James's church, but Paul calls them, they're back under the party of the circumcision. At this point, the Jerusalem church had severely backslidden and had gone back to the law of Moses. Remember when Paul went there to try to help them? James said, we're glad you're here. We heard you've been telling the Gentiles they don't have to keep the law of Moses. <laughs> we know that can't be true. Shave your head and keep the vow. And Paul did, and he went to prison for two years and didn't get to preach the gospel because he'd been warned three times, don't go back to Jerusalem. It's not safe for you but he did it anyway because Paul had a bias for the Jews. His bias and love for the Jews kept him from obeying God. We don't have time to teach on all that, but it's there in the book of Acts around chapter 19 and 20.
The rest of the Jews join him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas, the son of consolation, Barnabas who loved everybody, he was carried away by their hypocrisy. Hypocritical because two verses prior it says, uh, Peter, James, and John, who Paul says, who I thought were pillars, commended me and Barnabas for the work of the apostleship to the Gentiles. They said, that's God, yes, go and be blessed. Just remember the poor. And Paul said, which things I was off to do? So in Jerusalem, they're excited about us preaching to the Gentiles, but when they come and see it, they don't like it. And he said, Peter's a hypocrite. How, how do you like for Paul to forever write down in the gospel or the epistles, Peter's the hypocrite? He's a hypocrite. He made Barnabas, my right-hand guy, a hypocrite too. Even 30 years later, Peter's still trying to work this thing out. Peter had made an about turn in his prejudice, freely fellowshipping with Gentiles, but when members from his old crew showed up, Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, he fearfully reverted to his old heart condition. Peter's heart had not totally changed yet, and neither has ours. May God help us overcome the antichrist attitude of prejudice. We're way over time. Well, I, I've got to do one more lesson. We'll see what I can get done between now and next Sunday. I'm trying to get all together my lessons for Africa. We're doing a bunch of stuff there, but anyway. Father, we love you. We thank you for unity in the body of Christ. Show us our prejudices, our biases, even our own cultural pride. Help us, Lord, to not be arrogant in anything but our joy in you. Even as Paul said, may I boast in nothing save the cross of Jesus Christ to whom I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. Father, we love you. We thank you for helping us overcome sin. In Jesus' name, amen.